I know I don't appear like I can touch my toes. And so this might come as a surprise, but I was once one class away from being a certified yoga instructor. Namaste. And this was many downward facing dogs ago. And uh, during the season of my life, I was enthralled with my spirituality. Uh, While I'd read classic Hindu texts like the Bhagavad Gita, I was really drawn to New Age writings like uh, the alchemist or the prophet, you name it. Anything that blended religious ideas together like a buffet, I was in. Uh, But one day, my best friend at the time, he said to me, Alistair, stop it. Just stop it. All this talk of chakras and auras and astral projection and whatever, you're always talking about and you're pushing your beliefs on me. And then he said it, and I knew I must have irritated him for him to say what he went on to say. He he looked at me, and he took a breath, and he grunted, you're worse than Christians. No! Like, surely I wasn't worse than a Christian. Now, I'm not sure that his concerns were alleviated when I became a Christian a few years later, (laughs) but my friend expressed a common perception of Christians. We set the bar for people who push our faith on others, or so it seems. If you're a guest with us today, uh, it's, uh, we're grateful you're here, and it's likely you're here because somebody invited you. But you may be wondering, why do Christians feel the, na- the need to talk about our faith? Why can't we just keep it to ourselves, keep it personal, keep it private, keep it quiet? Please know you're not alone in that question, because I know many of us here who follow Jesus are asking that question too. Do I really need to talk about my faith? Can't I just stay quiet? If you are just joining us, uh, our church has been studying the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is a historical eyewitness account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've been studying this for quite some time. And today we reach Mark's conclusion. And as you've just heard in the reading, the first people to discover the empty tomb of Jesus said nothing to anyone. And that's how Mark's Gospel ends. And we think, we're off the hook. But obviously, they didn't stay silent. So what changed? Today is Easter, a worldwide celebration, of the resurrection of Jesus. And you should know, this is one of the rare Easter's where our calendar aligns with Orthodox calendars. So every single Christian in the world today is celebrating and remembering that Jesus came back from the dead. And to a degree, we're all remembering that we've lost our minds because this is not how the universe operates. It's not just good advice, it's good news. We're declaring something that took place within history, not just a good idea. Jesus is alive. Death has been defeated. But why is it that Christians are still talking about this event? Why can't we be more like the women in this this passage and just keep it to ourselves? This morning, I just want to explore three questions with you. Why should you trust what the Gospels have to say? Why does Mark end his gospel with silence? And what if Jesus really came back from the dead? So let's start with our first question. Why should you trust what the gospels have to say? Now, if you've ever been to St. Peter's before, you know at this point I'd pick up my Bible and say, open your Bibles with me. But there's a problem with this statement. Why should we trust anything written in this book? How do we even know it represents the historical Jesus? Because if it's not trustworthy, we're just wasting our time here. As Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, uh, he said, 
Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. But is this true? Take a look at this infographic with me, just really quick. The New Testament, which was originally composed between 40 AD and 90 AD, is unrivaled compared to any other ancient text. And we have over 20,000 of the earliest surviving copies and copies of copies that are dated, some of them, within 40 to 70 years from the originals. And all of these copies that we have, these 20,000 fragments, they're all consistent with each other. The same message, same words. Now, what's so impressive about this? It's only impressive when you compare it to other ancient documents. Take the Iliad by Homer. No one questions whether the Iliad was a real book or whether Homer actually wrote it, but we only actually have 643 copies written 500 years after the original. So when you consider the facts, there's more historical evidence for the historical person of Jesus than Aristotle or Plato or even Caesar. And what we hold in our hands because of the field of textual criticism is in all likelihood 99% likely to be the original writings of the New Testament. But the issue is how do we not know this is just a myth? So at this point, I do invite you to open your Bibles. If you don't have one, it's going to be on the screen uh, to Mark. And we're going to look starting in Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Mark adds, for emphasis, it was very large. Celsus was a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD. Uh, He's very antagonistic towards Christianity, as we've seen in many of his writings. He's the ancient equivalent of Richard Dawkins. And he argued that Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. Uh, Celsus had a way with the ladies. Uh, He he died single. (laughs) And uh, women in the cultural time of the the New Testament, unfortunately, had a very low standing within society. I'm not saying this was good. This was just the norm of the time. They couldn't even testify in court. So if Mark was going to fabricate a resurrection myth, it would be of no advantage to publicize that women were the first people to find the empty tomb, let alone a former prostitute like Mary Magdalene. It would undermine their credibility, just like Celsus wrote. But Mark keeps this detail. Why would he keep this detail unless it was actually what took place? Mark tells it as it is. Women are the first ones who found the empty tomb. And Mark, like all the other of the Gospels, provides names. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome. And he rarely provides names. And so he does here because he's reporting what was verifiable eyewitness testimony. When these Gospels were first written, you could go and talk to these people. But I get it. If you have an inner critic like me, this might help, but only marginally. And so you should know that the movement of Christianity has never been based solely on just blindly accepting what the Scriptures have to say. It's actually encouraged and okay to ask difficult questions about this book. Uh, Consider the next three verses in Mark, verses 5 through 8. 
Entering the tomb, they saw a young man, uh, which Mark doesn't say. The other gospels say was an angel. So this young man was on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And if you do have a Bible on hand, the passage continues rather oddly with, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) But it's true. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include what we call the end of Mark's gospel, verses 9 through 20. And in a sense, you should be relieved because the Christian tradition doesn't sweep these difficulties about Scripture under the rug. Rather, we point them out for the reader's consideration and say, hey, this is the facts. You should go look into it. Now, if you're worried, you should know there's only two agreed-upon insertions in the New Testament, this passage and uh, the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John, and both remain in Scripture because they're completely consistent with the New Testament's theology. Most scholars today agree that Mark's original Gospel ends at verse 8. And the working hypothesis is that a scribe or some scribes along the way felt Mark was incomplete. After all, why would you end with the silence of these women. It's an odd way to end things. And so based on the other Gospels, they created an ending that they knew was consistent with the rest of the stories. So returning to our first question, why should we trust the Gospels? They are set apart historically when it comes to source material. They are reliable. They are verified eyewitness testimony that do not gloss over the facts, even the difficult facts. And the Gospels, they have withstood even the most critical questioning about their transmission and origins. There's simply put no other text like them in the world. The Cambridge historian uh, Simon Gathercole puts it this way, these abundant historical references leave us with little reasonable doubt that Jesus lived and died. The more interesting question, which goes beyond history and objective fact, is whether Jesus died and lived. So now to our second question. Why does Mark end his gospel with silence? Look again at verse 8. And the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Have you guys heard of this up-and-coming artist, Adeli? Is that how you say it? Adeli? (laughs) After winning Album of the Year at the Grammys recently, She thanked, and this was shocking, her husband. And nobody knew she had gotten married. It was shocking. And, uh, you know, she got married to this guy named Simon Adeli or something. But uh, according to reputable sources like gossip magazines, uh, her family was disappointed and even shocked that she had a secret wedding without inviting them. Now, it's understandable that secret weddings are becoming more and more common in celebrity culture. And Uh, Even among us normies, which is what celebrities call us, it's becoming more and more common too. But I think it's also understandable that this would offend close friends and family because a wedding has long been a celebration, a communal event, a joy that is shared. And a secret wedding that excludes close family and friends, to some degree, misunderstands 
the nature of a marriage and the history of a wedding ceremony. You see, marriage is a very personal event, but it's also a public reality. Marriages don't happen in isolated bubbles. They take place within families and communities and societies. In the same way, the women's response here in Mark fundamentally misunderstands the resurrection. At the moment, it's a secret resurrection. They keep it to themselves. They keep it personal. But it's scandalous. Because this sort of news is personal, but also very public. Because if true, the universe has just been turned upside down. But the empty tomb was not what the women were expecting. You'll see, looking back at Mark, he tells us that the sun rose on the first day of the week. A little bit of foreshadowing and the first terrible Christian play on words, but let's move on. Mary, Mary, and Salome came expecting pragmatic difficulties. How will we move this massive stone? As Mark said, it was very large. You know, they came to the tomb expecting to anoint a body with spices. They came perhaps with a hope for some sort of closure. The irony, as one scholar puts it, is that the living are consumed with death, but the crucified Lord has been consumed with life. But the women, they've just received news that turns their world upside down. This is not how the universe operates, people. Dead stuff stays dead. And when someone dies, that's it. But now Mary, Mary, and Salome, they come to the tomb and find no death, no body. Rather, it's occupied with life. And not ordinary life, but a different kind of life. Eternal life, an angel. And on top of this incredibly overwhelming experience, the angel declares to them, do not be afraid. Good luck, but you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who's crucified. Well, he's risen. He's not here. What? The Jesus they loved and followed and witnessed being horrifically tortured and crucified. He's not dead. After being raised in the tomb for three days, he's risen. He's alive. You've lost your mind. Jesus told them in advance he would do this. You might recall that he tells his disciples this at least three times in the Gospel of Mark. But they didn't get it at the time, and they don't get it now. He's risen? How are you supposed to process information like this? This isn't how the world works, which is why Mark says that the women were trembling, astonished, and even afraid. These are the symptoms of shock. They can't process it. Now, amidst this world-altering, shock-inducing news, the angel gives them some very basic instructions. He keeps it simple. Verse 7, go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. And it seems simple enough, but they don't do it. Mark writes, they said nothing to anyone. And this is where the gospel of Mark ends. This is sort of like the controversial ending to the HBO series, The Sopranos. I love that show. Anybody watch The Sopranos? A little bit. Well, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to ruin it for you. Uh, here's how it ends. In mid-conversation, the screen just goes to black. Done. Credits start rolling. Story over. And you're like, what sort of ending is this? Did I just watch six seasons and commit 86 hours of my life and consume roughly 43,000 calories of pizza to this? And after 52 sermons in the Gospel of Mark, wouldn't we say the same? This is it? 
They witnessed the empty tomb and they said nothing to anyone. And the silence is also ironic. Better than the Alanis Morissette kind. But most of the time in the gospel, when a miracle takes place, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Keep it on the down low. And what happens? They go and tell everyone. And now, now the ultimate miracle has taken place. The resurrection has taken place. The angel says, go and tell everyone. And what happens? They tell nobody. The ironic silence would only be more intense for the original listeners of Mark's Gospels. Although we've been studying it section by section, Mark designed his Gospel to be read aloud in one sitting. And it takes less than an hour to do so. And if you sat down and read it all in one sitting, and I think you should, you would hear that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the King of Israel, that he is the promised Messiah. He can heal us. He can calm storms. He can forgive sins. He came to even save us from death by being our ransom. You hear all these incredible stories. Now imagine you're in a first century home, listening to this account being proclaimed, sitting at the edge of your seat with anticipation. You hear about it all. You hear about the resurrection and then silence. Mark is purposefully creating this tension. He wants us to feel it. Mark ends on the empty tomb. Remember, his gospel has been propelled forward by one main question. Who is Jesus? All along the way, he shows these incredible accounts of the life of Jesus to get us asking, who is this man? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And no silence an empty tomb. He's not here. He's risen. So now to our question, what if Jesus really came back from the dead? Then the tomb is no longer a place of death, but a place of life. Death doesn't have the final say. In our culture, we try to make death pretty and sterile, but it's not. We try to soften its reality by saying things like, they passed away. But this just shows how our culture finds death's grip upon humanity uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong, some people know how to discuss death well, and they know how to process the gravity of it. But if you've ever been to a funeral, you know there's the people who just don't know what to say and are uncomfortable. And it shows that death has a grip on us. Uh, take the American journalist and author Hunter S. Thompson as an example. He, was in the, he wrote the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And uh, Thompson did not live small. Uh, for example, he spent a year living and writing with the Hell's Angels as research for his first book. And he famously quipped, I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity to anyone, but they've always worked for me. He's overindulged in life. He had no fear of death. And Thompson didn't die small either. In 2006, when he did die, his funeral was funded by his friend Johnny Depp. And his ashes were fired from a cannon atop of a 153-foot tower, accompanied by red, white, and blue, and green fireworks uh, to the tune of Spirit in the Sky and Mr. Tambourine Man. And it was disclosed this year that this ceremony cost Depp personally $3 million. Hunter S. Thompson exemplified in his life and death what he once said. 
Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. But he's just echoing the ancient saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we shall die. This same philosophy permeates our culture. This life is all there is. Live it to the full while you have it. I believe this is what kids are calling YOLO. (laughs) But do you see, when you live this way, death still has the final say. Not just in the fact that we all die, but in the fact that death is still determining how you live. Death informs you that your life has a limited amount of time. So you commit to live for what gives you pleasure, what gives you meaning, what gives you enjoyment, what gives you satisfaction. And you might do some good things for others along the way, but you're ultimately doing it for yourself. Culture calls this wisdom. Scripture calls this life under the shadow of death. But Mark ends on an empty tomb, not a tombstone. Mark ends on an empty tomb, not a tombstone. Dorothy Day, she reflected all the idealism of a typical left-wing journalist of the 1920s. And for a time, she was a communist, which you must remember in that era in America was unthinkable. She believed in free love. She lived as a promiscuous bohemian. And as an activist and pacifist, she was arrested in 1917 for protesting for a women's right to vote outside the White House, and and she spent 15 days in jail, 10 of which she was on hunger strike. She was described by a friend as cool-mannered, tweed-wearing, drinking rye whiskey straight with no discernible effect. Exactly how I describe Roger. And (laughs) I'm convinced Day and Hunter S. Thompson uh, could have been friends. And then she converts to Christianity. And it shocked her circle of friends. They couldn't wrap their heads around it. The radical bohemian became a Catholic. Her beliefs, her lifestyle, it all changed. And yet, her activism and her pacifism became all the more alive. And it was infused with new life. Almost immediately after her conversion, she started the newspaper, The Catholic Worker, to publicize uh, Catholic social teaching and promote steps to bring about the peaceful transformation of society. And it was a huge hit with the masses. And it became a movement that started over 200 houses across America that continue to care for the poor, the lowest of low, to this very day. It became such a movement that Mother Teresa herself visited them. Throughout her life, Day protested every war, supported labor strikes. She was even shot at while working for racial integration. She was imprisoned several more times for nonviolent protests, the last time when she was 75. All her life, she lived in voluntary poverty. She always cared for the needy, and her apartment was always a place where people could stay when they had nowhere else to go. In 1980, she died. She didn't roll up to death, having radically lived life to the full for herself. Rather, she tirelessly poured out herself for others. She gave her life away because she had found a new life. She once wrote, The greatest challenge of the day 
is how to bring about a revolution of the heart, a revolution which has to start with each one of us. And here's her solution. When we begin to take the lowest place, to wash the feet of others, to love our brothers with that burning love, that passion which led to the cross, then we can truly say, now I've begun. Today, the greatest revolution begins by following Christ and receiving his life so that we can become like him. And all along the way, she couldn't stop talking about Jesus. Before she died, she said, if I have achieved anything in my life, it's because I've not been embarrassed to talk about God. Obviously, the women in Mark's gospel didn't stay silent for long. Here we are talking about them. Mary, Mary, and Salome couldn't. The news was too earth-shattering. The revolution swept them up. And Mark leaves us with one last question. Will we live for the tombstone or for the empty tomb? Will we live for the tombstone or the empty tomb? You could have your ashes shot out of a cannon, which is pretty awesome. Or you can have eternity infused into your soul because of the resurrected Lord. Death or resurrection. The two are incomparable. And this is why Christians are still talking about Jesus, because he's not in the tomb. He's risen. Mark ends his gospel with this reality because it means you're not going to find him in that tomb. You're going to find him here today. It's just too good to be private. Death is defeated. Christ is risen. Jesus is alive. He's God, the Son of God. So who do you say this Jesus is?